right, well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you guys for worship this morning. Uh, glad that we could just gather and be together as we study God's Word together. Um, if, if you are new or visiting, I especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, if there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we would genuinely love to do that. And I'd love to meet you, so come find me or someone else who kind of looks like they know what they're doing around here. And, and we would genuinely love to get to know you and help you get connected to the community here at River City. So... Um, this morning, looking forward to opening God's Word with you, as I always am. Last week, we began a new series, uh, taking a look at the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be, uh, basically, from now through the end of the summer, we're going to be working our way through that book of the Bible, um, just verse by verse, chunk by chunk, as we, as we study God's Word together. And so that's where we'll be for the next couple of months here together. 1 Corinthians, it's a, it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to, to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. It was a Greek city in, in Corinth that uh, was kind of located in this part of Greece that connects kind of the Greek mainland to the Peloponnesian Peninsula at the, at the end, kind of the, the tail end of, of, of Greece there. And, and Paul actually helped start this church about five years before the writing of this letter. And as we began our study last week, I tried to lay out some really important context as we seek to understand uh, how, to, how to understand this letter rightly. As we remember, we're kind of, when we read the book of 1 Corinthians, as much as many of the other letters in the New Testament, we're kind of, we're reading somebody else's mail, right? And while this letter was written for us uh, and for God's church and for God's people, it wasn't written to us. And so if we're going to understand it rightly, we're going to need to understand some of the context and what's going on to be able to understand and apply that rightly to our lives. Lives. And so as we began last week, we, we kind of talked about some of that framework that, that helped us understand what's really going on in this uh, very troubled young church. And if you remember, we talked about last week how Corinth is this incredibly important port city that basically because of its location kind of controlled east-west trade between Rome and basically the, the eastern portion of the Mediterranean. And, and so because of that, it was kind of the de facto port city for all that trade. And so huge amounts of goods and finances and wealth and culture poured through the city of Corinth. And, but not only was Corinth this incredibly important and wealthy port city, it was also a pretty new city. You see, Rome had conquered and destroyed the city and left it in rubbles for um, over a hundred years. And then they had basically rebuilt and resettled this city within the last hundred years, basically or mainly with people who were freed slaves or, or army veterans that had basically kind of done their service and they were on to the next portion of their lives. And so Corinth was a, was a city that was full of aspirational and upwardly mobily minded people who were, who were looking to make new lives for themselves and to make new identities for themselves. And all of that in one of the most culturally important and financially lucrative places in all the world at the time. And so that context is really important, is really important to understand because, because this deeply aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset, that was at the very core of Corinthian culture. It's the, the thing that was on everyone's mind. It was the everyone's highest priority was to be climbing the social ladder, right? Making an identity for themselves, making a name for themselves, climbing up, being seen as, as respectable and honorable and, and having power and influence. And that's that's what everyone in the city of Corinth was after. 
Everything revolved around it. It's the thing everyone cared most about it. One commentator summed it up best this way. I think this is so poignant. He writes, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. See, everyone was out for themselves to make a name, to make an identity for themselves. So it's a mindset that, that was epitomized last week. I talked about this guy named Babius and the monument that he built at the very center of Corinth. There's this very impressive monument that would have been at around the time that this letter was written and by, written by a guy named Babius. And we talked about that last week, how this monument was basically all about promoting Babius, right? He wanted people to make sure they remembered how important he was and how wealthy he was and how he was a self-made man who had kind of built this identity for himself. And it was so important that people remembered and knew that about him. And we saw how that perfectly reflected the Corinthian culture. One commentator, I think just so helpfully, he, he sums it up this way. He says, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. The Corinthian people lived with an honor-shame cultural orientation where public recognition was often more important than facts. And in such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on the recognition by others of one's accomplishments, hence this self-promoting and public inscriptions in their culture. And, and so we see the city of Corinth is consumed by this, up, this fixation on being upwardly mobile and, and gaining an identity for yourself and being seen as, as respectable and honorable and, and someone who has power and influence. And and what we find is, as you read the letter, Paul's letter to the, the Corinthians, what you find is that, is that the church in Corinth was no exception. You see, they had just full-on bought into the narrative of their culture, that what mattered most was the advancing of their own identity. And, and as you can imagine, it was causing a lot of problems. In fact, as you study the letter, what we're going to see is that the vast majority of the issues that, that Paul addresses in this young church, uh, they all stem back from this one issue. All these issues that are, that are happening in this radically dysfunctional church, they all stem back to this one problem, that, that while this church had believed the message of the gospel, that they were saved by faith in the person and the work of Jesus, their lives and their community were not being ongoingly formed by that reality and by that truth, by that story. Instead, their lives and their community, they're being formed by the values and the ethos of their surrounding culture. And this idolatrous fixation on upward mobility and climbing the social and economic ladder, it was alive and well in this young church. What's painfully clear as you read through the letter is that, that their highest priority, it's their own glory. And it's the advancing of their own identity and their own agendas and their own social advancement rather than God's glory and the gospel's advancing throughout the world. And what you see is that it's crippling their faith. Not only that, it's crippling their ability to be a witness to a watching world. As we continue our study this morning, we're going to see the first of many areas in which this problem is getting worked out and fleshed out in the lives of their, this Corinthian church, and in which they're being formed by the narrative of their culture rather than the story of the gospel. And, 
And in response to this false and destructive narrative, Paul's going to remind this struggling church about, about the true and better story of the gospel. He's going to remind them about how the gospel, uh, the true and better story that the gospel invites, calls, and empowers them to live in light of. It's a, it's a story that doesn't match up with any cultural narrative. It's upside down. It's confusing. It's, just, it's viewed oftentimes as just outright crazy. And yet what we're going to see is that in contrast to the division and strife that following this cultural narrative of building an identity for yourself always leads to living in light of the gospel, it, it leads to a life of unity and peace and joy. It's altogether different. And so I'm excited to show you that this morning as we study God's word. So let's pray. We'll dive into our study in 1 Corinthians. God, thank you for our time together in your word. God, we're so grateful that you would keep it for us, that we might study it, and that we might know you in it as you reveal yourself to us. And, and so, God, we, we come before you this morning grateful for your word, but also uh, utterly dependent on you. God, we need you to, to uh, God, I need you to be empowering me uh, to teach and to preach what is right and true. God, I don't have what I need without you. God, as well, we need you to enable us to respond rightly to your word. God, we cannot do that without you. And so we are utterly dependent on you as we come to gather and study your word. And so we ask, God, that for your great glory and for our good, that you might enable us to, to see rightly you in your word and to see the story of the gospel as you lay it out, that it might set us free from, from the need to live for our own identities. And so, God, we need you this morning. God, would you empower us to respond to you in ways that honor you and in ways that lead to our joy. God, we need you so badly. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians this morning, chapter 1, uh, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 5. begins this way. Paul writes, I appeal to you then, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean by this is that one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, and so that no one could say they were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power you see, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. For where is the wise person, and where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God through the world its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
You see, Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts, let, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling, and my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It's the word of the Lord. See, last week as we opened our study in 1 Corinthians, we saw Paul reminding this young church about this, this, their, this incredible identity that God had already given them as his holy people. We talked about how incredible this identity was, that, that it's an identity that didn't depend on them at all. In fact, it was in spite of them and all that they had done. And instead, it depended entirely on the person and the work of Jesus. We saw last week that Jesus called them into salvation, that he sanctified them, and that he would be the one who would be faithful to sustain them till the end. Unfortunately, though, what we see is that this church it wasn't resting or living in that identity. Instead, what we see is that they're desperately trying to make an identity for themselves the same way that everyone else in the city of Corinth was trying to do it by climbing the social and economic ladders of their day. What we see in the passage is that it was leading to all kinds of division in the church. Paul gets this report from this lady named Chloe. We don't really know much about her. She may have been somebody who was a part of the church. She may have been a businesswoman in the city that had connections to somewhere else where Paul was living or working. And whatever the case, she kind of sends Paul this report of, of what's really going on in this church. And, and part of the report is that she tells him that people are they're saying, one of, one of us follows Paul, verse 12. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter, the apostle Peter. Another, well, I just follow Christ. I'm above it all, right? What's happening is that, that people in the church are forming factions around the different leaders in the church. And it's important to know that these aren't like theological factions, right? Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus, they all preach the same message. They're preaching the same gospel. It's not that, they're, it's not that somebody's off whack and, and that they're, they're, it's not theological divisions. Instead, these divisions, it's important to see as well that these divisions weren't just rooted in some kind of pastoral popularity contest either. You see, what's really going on is that the people are latching on to certain leaders because that was one of the ways up the Corinthian ladder. 
You see, there's a bunch of ways you could kind of climb the Corinthian social ladder. You could, money, it was the best way up the ladder. We saw last week, Babius, that was his way up, right? He was a, had worked his way hard. He had made himself, he was a self-made millionaire. And, and so he had, money was the way that he had climbed the ladder. Another way you could climb the ladder in Corinth was, was to be seen as someone who was wise, the pursuit of wisdom was a huge deal in the Greco-Roman world. We have all these famous philosophers from this era and this time, right? Wisdom and the pursuit of knowledge and understanding, it was, it was incredibly important. But, but people needed to appreciate your wisdom, and that's another way up the ladder, you see. That's uh, oratory and fine speech, right? That was one of the other ways you could kind of climb the ladder, not just by being wise, but by, by being seen as winsome and as impressive in that way. The, the art of rhetorical persuasion was something that was highly valued in the Roman world. Professional orators, people who are just like professional speakers, they would, they would come to these large cities like Corinth and they would give these impressive displays of their ability to, to entertain and instruct and, and to do that in ways that were, very, that were very captivating and interesting. And what's so interesting is that when you look at that, what you find is that the, the content of what they were talking about really was irrelevant. That's not what people were, were interested in. That's not what people were after. What they were really interested in was their performance. How engaging were you? How interesting were you, right? How compelling were you? Did you catch my attention? And so wealth and wisdom and winsomeness, those were all ways you could kind of climb the ladder in Corinth. But if you didn't have any of those things, and then what you'd do is you'd try to latch yourself on to somebody who did. You see, in other words, what you needed to find in Corinth, if you didn't have wealth or wisdom or winsomeness, what you needed to find in Corinth was a patron. Famous Greek philosopher Plutarch, he, he describes this way up the Corinthian ladder in this way. He says, as a young vine twines itself around a strong tree to gain height, so an obscure person will seek a connection with a person of reputation to be under the shelter of his power and to, and to grow great with him. You see, what's happening in the Corinthian church is that they just completely adopted their culture's, their culture's upwardly mobile system of patronage. And despite the reality that they already had an identity in Christ, the Corinthians are trying to make an identity for themselves through union with some other patron, right? They thought, if I could just associate with my, some, myself with somebody who's, who's respectable, with somebody who's, who's influential, with somebody who's kind of higher up the ladder than I think I might be, then, then by being connected to them, I'll also be honored and elevated and viewed as somebody who's important or valuable or praiseworthy, you see, ultimately what's going on in this system of patronage is just, it's just an attempt at self-validation by the means of attaching yourself to somebody else's success. You see, but it's so important, you see, don't think for a minute that's not something you and I wrestle with as well. You see, the reality is we do that all the time. We attach ourselves to people, to products, to institutions, to employers, to brands, all in an effort to kind of pull ourselves up the ladder. We're trying to secure an identity for ourselves that will give us some sense of validation that we're looking for, kind of save us from the obscurity that we cannot bear, Right? How often in your workplace are you trying to get the job that you're like, all right, I see this person who's climbing the ladder. They're, they're rising the ranks. I'm going to latch myself onto them, and I'm going to ride their coattails up the ladder at work. 
Right? When it comes to causes we see in the world, we look for the causes and the, and, the, and the things that are kind of everyone's getting on board with, right? And we align ourselves with those things because that's one of the ways up the ladder, right? You gotta be in the in crowd. And, and if you can align yourself with the causes and with the, with, the, with the most important ideologies of the day, then you can kind of climb the ladder with everybody else. We do that with brands and clothes and all that kind of stuff, don't we? Right? We attach ourselves to all kinds of things. Those things that kind of become our functional patrons, right? I'll just attach myself to this person, this brand, this ideology, this cause. And by attaching myself to that, I'll be able to kind of climb up the ladder of respectability. And I'll be seen by other people as somebody who's, who's honorable, somebody who's worth respecting, somebody who can be influential. One commentator sums it up this way. He writes, our patron-based search for an identity, it leads us to attach ourselves to all kinds of surrogate saviors. We become fierce evangelists for political parties or diets or methods of parenting or education because these things give or attach us to a sense of identity and purpose but they cannot hold the weight and they ultimately crumble, creating walls between us and those who have attached themselves to other things. See, these divisions in this church, they're just a result of them trying desperately to make an identity for themselves. And the way up the ladder, the way up to an identity was to latch yourself on to someone or something in the Corinthian culture Corinthians were looking at these leaders as patrons who could somehow help them climb the ladder to honor and respect and power and influence and give them a sense of self-validation and self-worth. Some of them were apparently even viewing Jesus this way. He's just the patron that kind of helps me climb some other ladder. And Paul says in the rest of the letter, Paul's what you hear him saying is in essence, I didn't come to be your patron. I didn't come to help you climb the ladder and neither did Jesus. You see, Paul says instead, I came proclaiming the message of a Savior who didn't come to bring you up some social ladder, but who came to set you free from slavery to living in that narrative in the first place. You see, Paul goes on to highlight how this, this problem of divisiveness in the church and this mindset of, of ultimately this upward mobility, that, that it's a message and it's a mindset that is totally at odds with the message of the gospel. You see, everything in the Corinthian culture was about doing whatever you could to kind of climb up that ladder or attach yourself to someone else who was in an effort to get honor and influence and respect and power. And in verse 23, what we see is that Paul comes with a message he proclaimed he came proclaiming was about a God who, who didn't come to bring you up the ladder, but a God who came himself to descend the ladder. He came so far down the ladder that he would be killed by his own creation in the most horrific and humiliating way possible. That's the message of Christ crucified. See, in the Corinthian worldview, you see the cross is at the absolute bottom of the ladder. 
It is the place of shame and dishonor and foolishness and weakness. It is the place that you loathe and that you hate it. It's the place that everyone can unitedly look down on and, and, and absolutely reject. What you see is that the message of Jesus, crucified, that's the one thing Paul refuses to stop talking about. You see, because in spite of appearing foolish and weak and shameful, ah, the message of the gospel, it's a revelation of God's very power. And it's good news. You see, it's a message that does not match up with anyone's standards. Paul says it's a, it's a stumbling block for the Jews and it's foolishness to the rest of us Gentiles. But this upside down countercultural story of the gospel is actually good news, Paul says, because if the wisdom of God, if, if God's plans and his purposes, if, if his way of the world, if his, if his wisdom and, and the gospel, if it followed the wisdom of the world, he says you would miss out. It wouldn't be for you. 26, he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many influential, not many of noble birth. Paul reminds this church, they were utterly unimpressive. They weren't well on their way to climbing up the ladder in Corinth. They were hopelessly stuck at the bottom. And that's when God came after them and rescued them. You see, most of the believers in Corinth, they belonged to the class of people that, that the elites regarded as foolish. They were uneducated or intellectually incompetent. They were, they were weak. They didn't have power and they didn't have influence. They were, they were lowly. They were not of noble birth and they were insignificant. They were despised because they were treated without as not having worth. And they were the things that were not. They were, they were the non-impressive people. They were the people at the bottom of the ladder. And yet the message of the gospel is that God chose precisely these kinds of people that they might come to faith in Jesus and they might receive the riches of his grace and the identity as his holy people. I think so, what happens so often for us is that we spend so much of our lives fighting weakness. We, we hate feeling weak. We hate being weak. We, we, we hate the sense of inadequacy. We, we, we run from it at every possible turn. It's the thing that we cannot bear much. And yet Paul says the good news of the gospel is that this message of salvation, it comes not when or because you are strong, but when and because you are weak. And it's only when we would embrace our weakness and our lack of strength that we might actually be able to experience true strength because it won't be ours. It will be God's power and his strength at work in us. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the last couple of verses in our passage, Paul's saying, that's what I did when I came to you. He says, I intentionally made myself weak in your eyes. I didn't come, he says, with eloquence or human wisdom. I, I, he says, instead, I came to you in weakness, 
with great fear and trembling. He says, my message and my preaching, he says, they weren't with wise and persuasive words. Paul says, I didn't use any of the tricks that your culture thinks matter the most. I didn't come with some impressive rhetorical argument. I didn't come with some incredibly eloquent words of wisdom. I wasn't trying to tickle your ears or make you impressed with me. You see, Paul says, I didn't use any of that stuff, and I need you to see this. Don't misunderstand him. Paul is not saying that he was a bad preacher or that he didn't know how to preach with eloquence or persuasive arguments. Just read the book of Romans, right? The dude knows what he's talking about, right? He is, he is a wildly impressive guy. He can preach with the best of them. He can write with the best of them. He is incredibly smart and persuasive. He wrote the book of Romans from the city of Corinth, no less. Instead, what we see Paul is saying is that he preached a foolish message in a foolish way so that the people in this culture, so that their faith would not rest in him. But that, he says, I didn't want your attention for myself. See, he wanted them to be captivated not by the messenger. He wanted them to be captivated by the message. the message of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe who stepped down from heaven to rescue a wicked and rebelliously and hopelessly self-insufficient people. So as verse 30 says, we might be made righteous and holy and redeemed. You see, and Paul could do that. Paul could make himself weak because the gospel had set him free. Set him free from needing to climb the ladder and needing to make an identity for himself and needing to gather a following and, and needing to be seen as impressive by others. Instead, the gospel empowered him to willingly choose to descend the ladder for the sake of others. So that what people might be impressed by is Jesus and not him. See, some of you are here this morning and you are desperately trying to make an identity for yourself and it's not going well for you. It's not going well. See, because like these Corinthian Christians, you're not impressive and you're not influential and you're just trying to uh, attach yourself to other people or brands or causes or whatever it might be so that you can kind of ride their coattails to self-validation. And the good news of the gospel, it, it sets you free from slavery to living in that narrative by giving you an identity that is far superior and far more secure and far better than any identity you could ever earn or merit for yourself. comes by the person and the work of Jesus who came to rescue and redeem and make you holy. Not when you had finally gotten to the top of the ladder, but while you were hopelessly stuck at the bottom. You see, but the gospel, it, it, it not just frees you from slavery to the need to build an identity for yourself. See, like it did for the Apostle Paul, it empowers you actually to embrace your weakness, to embrace all the things you feel like running from all the time so that others might see the good news of the gospel in and through your life. 
You see, we all want to be seen as impressive. We all want others to look at us and to, and to admire us, right? Some of you want accolades. Others of you just want people to quietly look at you and just think, ah, I approve, right? You see, but we all want that from people. Jesus says, Paul's reminding this culture He's reminding this church who is, who is full of divisions and strife and quarreling and fighting because they've attached themselves to something different than someone else to try to get an identity. And Paul's reminding them, you already have an identity that's far better than you could ever have gotten from me or anyone else. You're God's holy people, rescued by him, sustained by him, sanctified by him, loved by him. The great king of the universe has already given you an immeasurable value and worth. So stop trying to climb the ladders. Instead, embrace your weakness. Revel in the fact of your unimpressiveness because what happens is that you get to enjoy God all the more. When you are willing to come to terms with the fact that you are unimpressive, that you are unworthy, that you didn't earn something from God, what happens is you get to enjoy him. And the fact that he rescued you and he saved you becomes this incredible, joyous thing for you. And you don't have this self-righteous attitude that you think you've earned it or made it yourself somehow you instead are incredibly humbled and yet you're not full of self-pity, you're full of joy because you realize in the midst of your weakness, God loved you. In the midst of your unimpressiveness, he called you to be his. In your inability to make something of yourself, God gives you a calling, an identity, and a purpose as his sent people what else could you ask for? It's the greatest thing in all the world. And so instead of clamoring to latch yourself onto the people and things that, and the causes that this world says matters and to climb up the ladder, I want to invite you this morning, latch yourself onto Jesus. Stick close to him. Embrace him who became weak so that you might become strong in him. And I want to encourage you this morning to embrace your weaknesses. That's when God most powerfully can work within you. In fact, it's when we embrace our weaknesses that other people get to see Jesus through us. You see, dying to ourself and our desire to be seen as impressive so that we might live with Christ is, is the one thing that not only can overcome tribalism and divisions in our churches and in all other places, but it's the one thing that gives us an identity, that gives life and joy. You see, the message of the gospel seems like weakness and foolishness. Ah, but it's really freedom and power. You see, in the message of the gospel, the message of Christ Crucify. That's what we remember and we celebrate every week when we take communion together. 
See, we're reminding ourselves with the bread of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he descended the ladders of respect and honor in our world. And we remember with the drink that his blood was shed for us as he poured himself out, not to get something from us, but to give us all that we needed. And we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We remember all that it accomplishes for us. It's through the person and the work of Jesus that we receive the identity we are desperately looking for. We're given a status and a standing by the king of the universe as his beloved people, commissioned with the most noble and honorable tasks in all the world to make him known. Not because we are strong or impressive or worthy, but because he is. And he's called us to be his. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It doesn't help you climb his ladder somehow. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus so that in remembering all that he has done for us, we would be filled with all the power and the motivation we need to give ourselves to him. So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you've put your trust in Jesus to to give you the identity that you are looking for and to be the one who maintains it for you, then whenever you're ready, then I'd encourage you to take communion. Hopefully you grabbed one of the communion snack packs on your way in on the foyer there. And if you didn't, you can grab one on the way out. But And so whenever we're taking communion, whenever you're ready during our time of worship, then do that as a remembrance and a, as a reminding yourself about Jesus. But, but if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to receive an identity from him, then I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion this morning. You, I need you to hear this. You are welcome here. You're welcome in this church and in this community. In fact, I'm so honored that you would even be here with us. But God is not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's after your heart, heart that hopes in him and trusts in him and clings to him alone. And so receive him, latch onto him before you receive communion. As we take communion this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Be honest with him. He knows what's going on in your hearts already. So just be honest with him. What are the patrons that you are clinging to other than him? What are the things that you have attached yourself to to kind of pull you up the ladder? The things that are often dividing you from other people. What are the patrons that you need to reject so that you might be able to receive him as a savior? And what weakness are you constantly running from that you might instead need to start embracing so that you might experience the good news and the power of Jesus working in and through you? Let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, we uh, come before you this morning. God, we are so grateful for you. God, I'm just thankful for the reminder this week as we've studied your word about just about the identity that you give us in spite of ourselves. God, and I 
I just feel drawn to just the need for us to confess the fact that we, we attach ourselves to all kinds of surrogate saviors, thinking they can save us and give us the identity we're looking for and rescue us from the obscurity that, that we feel like we cannot bear. Jesus, we attach ourselves to all kinds of other things. Jesus, help us to see what that stuff is that we might reject it and we might latch ourselves onto you. God, the great king of the world who gave himself for us so that we might have life in you. Oh God, we need you. God, help us in the midst of our weakness to trust in your strength, in the midst of our unimpressiveness to rely on your glorious grace. God, so that our world and our community might be impressed not with us, but with you, King Jesus. That they might see you for who you are and might worship you as such, God. To that end, we pray. Amen.